Rockheads, this is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.pwop.com. Net Rocks, episode 1273, with guest John Papa. Recorded Friday, March 11th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're back. We're back from a little hiatus of recording. John Papa is here. We're raring to go. We just got so many shows in January that we got, I don't know, something like eight weeks ahead. Yeah. So we had a couple of weeks off. Right. So let's just get into it, shall we? Absolutely. Yeah. Better know framework. All right, dude, what do you got? All right. Well, this is show 1273. So if you go to uh, 1273.pwop.me, that will bring you to a site called lavishbootstrap.com. Great name. Lavish Bootstrap, and John might know about this. This is a thing where you can generate your own bootstrap color scheme from an image. No. Yes. You send an image, it analyzes all the colors, and then it gives you a bootstrap color scheme. It's awesome. You know what's funny about this is, of course, this is exactly what I'm going through in my basement, right? <laughs> we have to redo the whole basement so the wife's like pulling together color schemes and things and yeah and it's she takes objects that are going to be in the space and right. takes colors from that yeah right so exactly and this is an automated version of that. that's very cool go ahead and try it right now i mean john you could try it and you guys all you got to do is just drop an image on it or you know select an image it's quick it's amazing i love it it's so neat yeah yeah, this is an art thing I don't understand, but I, I, I can use automation around it. <laughs> well, I can, I can, I mean, you just do some analysis on the, on the image and find out where the dominant colors are and, um, right. you know, reduce them. I guess it's a map reduce problem. I'm not sure, yeah. but it sounds that way. Yeah, it's really interesting. What a neat find. Nice one, dude. Thanks, man. Uh, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1186, the one we did with one John Papa, where we talked about Visual Studio Code. And of course, we talked about spas because, you know, spa guy. Spa guy. And Tommy Parnell had this really interesting comment. And there's a bunch of ways to take this. So listen to it. And then let's have a little bit of a discussion here. He says, great show, guys. One thing I've noticed is there is a lot of conversations around Angular and Aurelia. Mm-hmm. While those tools are fantastic, I'd like us not to forget about other amazing frameworks in the wild like Backbone, Ember, and Mithril. Right. We should always use the tool that will work best, not the tool we necessarily know the most about. Yeah. And I, and I would point out, John, I know you commented with a few people on this particular show and talked about, hey, use the tool you know. Right. Like that, they, it, it makes a lot of sense to be comfortable and confident with stuff than it necessarily, you know, it's hard. One of the ways to assess best is I know how to do this. Right. I'd also like to take a moment to remind everyone that there's a Visual Studio alternative that is more lightweight. Well, everything's more lightweight than Studio, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, called Mono Develop. 
or you could call it Xamarin Studio, whatever makes you happy. It's not just for Xamarin. It can be used for lots of different projects, including ASP.NET projects. Yes. As someone who works on Ubuntu, I find this editor to be my lifeline back to the .NET world without having to open up a virtual machine. Yeah. Which I think, A, I think it's super cool that Tommy listens to .NET Rocks, but he works from Ubuntu. So it just sort of speaks to the fact that we're reaching a, you know, we talk to folks that are working on other platforms and still find ways and need to work with .NET. Right. And then, and then, and I think it just, you know, this is the first show we've recorded in a while since the Xamarin acquisition. John, I hope you'll chime in on this because it's a big topic. But Tommy, thank you so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social medias because we publish every show to Google Plus and to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And of course, uh, you can tweet us and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And Send us a tweet anytime we uh, keep them as pets. And that brings me to John Papa. John is a Google developer expert, a Microsoft regional director and MVP, a frequent author of courses for Pluralsight, a former technology evangelist for Microsoft front-end teams, and author of the popular Angular Style Guide. He can often be found speaking around the world at keynotes and sessions for many conferences, including our own Dev Intersection. Well, Richard's own Dev Intersection. <laughs> and you can always find John at johnpapa.net or on Twitter at John underscore Papa. Welcome, John. Hey, how you doing, guys? Doing great. H- had you seen Lavish before, before we get started? I did not. I just Googled it and pulled it up, and it's kind of cool. It's really cool. Yeah, I, I love tools like this. And I know you're like the king of tools. I've I've found more CSS and styling and testing tools by just by listening to you than I've found on my own. Yeah, it's neat how many little tools that are out there that uh, people are creating all the time. And this looks like a very small site, but it's a really great idea. Yeah. You drop an image on there, come up with a color scheme. That's pretty cool. So uh, catch us up to speed on Angular 2. What's new in the in the world of Angular? So much these days, you know, Angular one, gosh, six years ago now was created something like that, which is like a hundred million years in the web. (laughs) And, uh, Angular two is getting close to release. I mean, I've got to think sometime in 2016, it's going to happen. Uh, we're in beta nine right now of Angular two. They're doing weekly drops of their betas. And the cool thing is like during the alpha drops, they did these weekly drops and I think they got like 50 something. It was always changing, you know, it was an alpha. So everything changed and APIs, especially in the beta. I keep all my samples up to date. And every time a new beta comes out, I literally spend about five minutes updating my samples. Wow. And most that's of that's all? literally just copying and pasting. <laughs> so, you know, that seems like a, not a very big amount of time. Yeah. It's been, you know, maybe there's a big beta change coming. Who knows? But from what I've seen so far, I go in there and I update my package JSON for the new version uh, and the biggest changes I've seen are like, oh, well, this version of Angular now wants the new version of uh, RxJS, which we can talk about a little uh, on the show a little later. Okay. Or maybe it needs, um, like the only API change I've seen so, more, so far is actually in RxJS. It wasn't actually even in Angular. So I had to get rid of a generic. One of the functions was a generic and it no longer is. So uh, it's been good. Well, I just remember when ASP.NET core one, I guess is what we're calling that now. Every time it had a beta update, that was not a five minute fix. No. And I think a lot of us joked that the, the betas and ASP, not joke, but you know, we being honest, we said that the betas weren't really betas. They were alphas, right? They were alphas. Yeah. Which and the release never, candidates seem to be betas. 
Yeah. Everybody has their different model. All I cared about was that I like the model that both Google and Microsoft do, and that's they show you what's going on behind the curtain early and often. Um, the downside of that is they take a lot of flack for it, both companies because things are changing. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? We, we, we used to take a lot or we, they used to take a lot of flack for, you know, keeping everything secret, just sort of dropping this bombshell off on us every, uh, every year or so. It's like, why didn't you take more feedback? Why didn't we see this coming? And now that you can see the sausage being made. Yeah. People are now, the reaction is, ew, sausage. <laughs> you know, you can't make everybody happy and it's, it's, it's just funny. You know, it, it gets down to being a good, uh, open source citizen. And I think we need training on that, quite frankly, in the industry yeah. and how to actually behave better with each other. Well, and I think an awful lot of .NET people are just coming to open source and, and finding it weird. Yeah. And the people who grew up with open source, they have never experienced the other side of it too. So there's different expectations when that's what you've grown up with, uh, like .NET or Java, or what you've grown up with is more like just, you know, hey, ever since I've been doing this, it's just download off GitHub and run. Right. And I, and I don't want to let uh, Tommy Purnell's comment go away because talk about a different kind of developer listening to the show, living in Ubuntu, clearly working in open source space, working with the Xamarin tools, but still using .NET. Yeah. So, hey, it's okay to disagree with people, right? Is that okay in this show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to disagree with some of what Tommy is saying and agree with some of it as well. Uh, in a sense, the theme of his comments are all about how what he enjoys is using Ubuntu and MonoDevelop and Mithril and these other tools. Um, but he's also saying that it's not about what you enjoy. It's about the tool that will work best. Right. Which I think is a very subjective statement. Absolutely. That's where I kind of disagree. I think he's actually disproving his statement by saying all the other things he's saying because he enjoys those things and it works for him. Right. But it may not work for somebody else. So, uh, I applaud him for doing all these things. No, some of these are not very mainstream, right? Yeah. No. That's that's awesome. That's great. Uh, you know, in Aurelia and Angular, we there's a lot of conversations around those two, which is right. But if you go ask the open source folks in general, like I had literally had nine people this week ask me about Angular 2 from companies. Yeah. Call me to have a conversation about it. And none of them had heard of Aurelia. They're all like, Interesting. do I do Angular or do I do React? Yeah. And philosophically, those are two very different libraries, React yes. and Angular. Mm -hmm. Yes. Where I think Aurelia and, and Angular, and I'm, we're going to talk to Rob Eisenberg in the next week or so, so he'll probably kill me for saying this out loud, but it, I don't see them as that wildly different. I don't either. I mean, under the covers, obviously, but yeah, you know, I've done both of those and they both feel good to me and they both do the job. Uh, it's, you know, which one's better. They're both going to create great apps. So we'll react. If you want to pick something to create a great app, all three of those are great, solid tools. They're all screwdrivers that'll screw in a screw. Right. Right. So let's get back to Angular 2 for just a minute. It's great that it only takes you five minutes to, uh, to, to, to upgrade it, so to speak. But, um, what it, what exactly is so different about it? What do you get from going from Angular 1 to Angular 2? Uh, so let's, let's talk about, forget the technology and think about how we build apps and where the web was when Angular 1 and JavaScript was back five, six years ago. There were so many things at the time and jQuery was the king. I mean, yeah. the undisputed king, right? Yeah. And in some ways it still is, right? But the reason jQuery existed and the re is the same reason that Angular 1 was in the state that it's in now. 
And that's because the web browser world needed shims. They needed things to make things on an equal basis. Uh, we didn't have a lot in ES5, and a lot of browsers only supported ES3, ECMAScript 3. Right. So Angular 1 had to add all these extra features in to cover up the holes that were in the JavaScript and the browsers. Yeah. Some examples. Like every time in Angular 1 you type something, you have to start off a controller, a service, a directive with the word angular.module. And then you do angular.controller. So you've got all this Angular everywhere. Ceremony. It's ceremony. Exactly. Uh, we needed it back then. Arguably, people say you didn't, but you really did if you wanted to be consistent. Um, and then you also need to do things like uh, ifies. Basically, we had no classes or real modules. So if you wanted to create any kind of scope inside of JavaScript, we had to wrap everything we did inside of a function that was self-executing inside of other parentheses. Right. And it was just, that's what an iffy is, immediately invoked function expression. And all that stuff just adds up to more ceremony and more clutter. Well, the first thing you won't notice, or you will notice when you go to Angular 2, is there's a lot less Angular. Hmm. <laughs> it moves itself out of the way, in other words. Yeah. And it ain't perfect still. Let's, let's be honest. There's still things that are like, yeah, I wish I didn't have to do that. Um, but the modern frameworks are embracing ECMAScript 6, or ECMAScript uh, 2015, as it's mm. better known as now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where that's heading, as well as TypeScript. And because of that, they no longer have to worry about a lot of these things we had to shim and sham earlier. So there's a lot less ceremony. There's a lot more just plain old JavaScript. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's just cleaner in a lot of ways. Now, there's been a lot of fuss about there being like substantial breaking changes in Angular 1 and Angular 2 are just not really that related. Yeah. You know, it all depends how you think about it. I mean, Angular 1, Angular 2, it's a, you're not, you're not going to be able to take Angular 1 code and just run it with the Angular 2 library. It's not going to happen. Right. Uh, just like you can't with ASP.1, divert to 2, to 3, to 4, et cetera. Uh, major breaking changes, it's a major version if you follow Semver. But the concepts are there. Under the covers, it's radically different, but the concepts are there. And I do. I just wrote a course for Pluralsight where part of it was aimed at showing what you did in Angular 1 and how you now do that in Angular 2. Mm. Cool. To me, I find that very easily relatable, and it's not that hard to make those leaps. In a lot of ways, there's less. So, for example, in Angular 1, we had this thing called ng-click, we had ng-bind, we had ng-focus, ng-blur, ng-mouseover, ng-whatever you want. There were, I'm going to guess, 80 of these things. Built-in directives that I could link you to on the web. Uh, basically, what they were, were, they were little abstractions for the browser to say, I want to do an event or a property interaction with the browser, but the browser isn't really supporting it or the language wasn't, so Angular had to add these things, these built-in directives. Well, with Angular 2, they're like, you know what? We're just going to lean on the browser because we have a click method in the browser. The DOM exposes click, mm -hmm. focus, blur, on mouse move. So they threw away dozens of directives they had in Angular 1, and now they just lean on what's in the browser. That's great. So there's a lot less code in that case. One of the reasons I think that uh, I remember people um, avoiding Angular and sticking with Knockout, which was one of the, one of the first... Uh, is the, all of the ceremony that was, in, like you said, involved in, in, in version one and before. And uh, uh, do you think that JavaScript developers really like this idea of a more, oh, I don't know, aspect-oriented JavaScript, for lack of a better word, where, you know, things are sort of hidden away in JS files and stuff just happens without having to, you know, do a lot of decoration? 
you know, I think it's still early to, to go there. I think a lot of the folks come from Java and .NET are liking it. Yeah. Because that's what they're used to. And if you, all you've ever done is functional programming in JavaScript, mm. like I've gotten so used to that now for the last five, six years that there's days I'm like, you know, it'd just be easy if I wrote functions and got rid of all this other stuff. Right. Uh, so I think it just depends what you're familiar with, but I personally enjoy it. So you think that's where we're headed though with, with these frameworks is just taking more and more stuff out of the way and things just happen that you may or may not understand or know about? I think in some ways that'll happen. And like, for example, there's things in .NET as .NET evolved uh, that I can remember where we would have something in the .NET framework that would do something for us. And then eventually some of those things actually moved off to C sharp. Yeah. You know, as the language got richer, the framework no longer had to be an abstraction layer to cover up a deficiency in the framework or a feature that was just new and cool. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're seeing more of that with JavaScript because let's face it, JavaScript 6 or JavaScript 2015 or ECMAScript 6, whatever you want to call it, uh, it is a dramatically different language than ES5 was. Hmm. There's so much more in it now. You've got classes and you've got uh, the let function, which don't underestimate the power of that because you actually can define now the closure right. of where your variable exists. It seems very c sharpy to me. It's great. <laughs> It is. Isn't it funny? And people make fun of, well, Anders is doing TypeScript, so therefore Microsoft is evil and we can't go that direction. I'm like, guys, if you look at ES6, it looks a lot like C-sharp too. So. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with Anders. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Raygun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software? Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product. It gives you real-time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. So when you're using Angular, do you have to worry about what version of ECMAScript is running? In other words, you know, as a just a JavaScript developer, if you use ECMAScript's ES6 stuff and the browser doesn't support it, right? But is there a way to say, I'm uh, to declare, like in TypeScript, I know you can just say, I want to use ECMAScript 5. But is there any way in, in JavaScript to say, we're using five, we're not using six, you know, to assert that? Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think one of the changes that is not going to go away in the near future is when there's two things to think about. You can choose what you want to write your language in. So do I want to write it in ES5 or ES6 or TypeScript? And that's purely the developer's mindset. What yeah. do you want to write it in? Right. And then the second decision is, what is my browser going to run it with? Yeah. And they're very separate decisions because you could literally say, I like ES6. I don't want to go to TypeScript. I don't want to go back with ES5, mm -hmm. but I like ES6. And write in that and then use a tool to what we call transpile it so that any browser can read it. Right. So is that tool done just before publishing or is that, uh, is, is it a dynamic tool? I mean, it, or are there both kinds? There's both. So like when I develop, I like I use TypeScript. So when I develop, I have the TypeScript compiler running in the background, watching yeah. my files. 
and automatically transpiling it to ES5 because mm. that's the most common and ubiquitous now for the browsers. Uh, but for a build process, like before I actually deploy to production or to any environment, we actually use a the TypeScript compiler as part of that process to transpile it down. So it's not on the fly. It's like at the end, and then we bundle and minify and all so that. So if you're not using TypeScript or one of these tools, you can't just like you know, put a put a declaration somewhere that says this site or this page or this script uses ES5. There's actually some, I, I won't say no, because there's some ways you can do it, though I don't generally recommend it. Uh, for example, you could use System.js, which is a module loading tool, mm. and it has an option, which I feel is only really good for development or quick demos, that it will do the transpilation for you in the browser. Cool. So you can send your TypeScript or ES6 up, and it knows, hey, your TypeScript, I'll transpile that to ES5 for the browser. And the reason I don't recommend that is because if you have a large app, anything larger than a demo, that could take a while. Yeah, transpiling feels slow. Yes. Like, j just the term. I guess the question is, what's the reality? So in the demo apps that I run, and I'm talking anything from two pages to 30 pages, Right. So some of those are kind of large. My transpilation process takes about two seconds on the server. Yeah, which to, to, in my mind, it's like, that's just not that slow. It's not that slow, right? It's it's slow for a website because after two seconds, people start turning away from marketing. Yeah, that's that, that's the, supposed <laughs> to be the total load time of your page. Yeah. But if, let's say, you have a big app, uh, you know, with, I don't know, massive sites that are out there in the web running Angular or whatnot, you wouldn't want it to take, because it could take uh, some of our server apps that I've done, it take like, you know, 40 seconds to transpile. Right. Because they have thousands and thousands of files in them. Yeah, well, every, I, mean, I, I hear Chris Love ringing in my ears, the, 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 you know, the, the strongest advocate for just write the JavaScript yourself. Yeah. But, you know, the, the IT guy may start thinking in terms of, hey, isn't this a service I would put into my server to cache different compilations or transpilations of a page? And then based on the browser coming at me, send down the optimal version. Yeah, you, you can do that with it. But the, the nice thing is uh, the browsers, until they all support ES6, like what we do for a lot of our stuff is we transpile everything uh, using a Jenkins build process or whatever your build server is, mm -hmm. TFS. Uh, and then that stuff gets basically like shrink wrapped. You know, you, you right. basically put a stamp on it saying that's the version we're using. You get it cache busted so you can put it up there. Uh, maybe put it on CDN and then you toss it up into production. Um, and that's your ES5 code. So it pulls it down and basically the browser never knows it was ever part of TypeScript. It has no right. idea you wrote it in that. Yeah, but, it, you know, I guess the other question, and I don't know the answer to this really is, is a is a is an ES6 capable browser actually going to run ES6 faster than it would run ES5? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, some of them could, uh, the way they're doing things, because when you transpile down to ES5 from ES6, in some ways, some of those things will be less efficiently written, right? You know, because the language got richer. And of course, just because you know Chrome ships an ES6 version of Chrome doesn't mean everybody's going to upgrade to it. Although you know Chrome is pretty good about upgrading whether you want it to or not. Right, but right. You, I we we're always going to have the lowest common denominator, and you know until yeah. until you literally do the IE6 campaign stuff, where it's like we are simply not going to run this. And the funny thing is, people on the web we find in general that people on the web are much more apt to upgrade their home 
uh, browsers. It's the enterprises that are locking yeah. themselves in forcefully into a, I'm using, you know, Netscape 3 from 1997 or oh. something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the real reason IE6 persisted was XP. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You know, and I, I would say that it's not so much that, that people at home are willing to upgrade, is that people at home aren't aware they're being upgraded. Uh, right. True. It's it's the model of the evergreen browser. It's the I will yeah. do it for you. And, and frankly, what well, IE does that now, right? With Edge. Yep. Windows does it. Yeah. Everything's doing it. Now. I can't I I opened Windows 10 this morning and there was a there's a uh a message on my screen that said, All your files are where they were. I'm like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> I decided to update. You know, that message was supposed to be good news. So why did all of us get chills when you said that? Uh, yes, it, I was freaking out. I honestly yeah. was freaking out. But it looked like, you know, it looked like the Windows 10 font. It was full screen. The, you know, there was a ch- changing color behind it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was still freaking out. Wow. It's, you know what? They're dropping into the uncanny valley there. Yes. Right? It's just a little too hal. Yeah. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Everything's you know? fine, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, right, now it's you're fine. freaking no, me really, out. <laughs> and you're like, I didn't know anything was wrong, but now that you say it, what the hell is wrong? Task manager. I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, right, where were we? So I was uh, the second part I wanted to want to mention there, which I think is kind of important, is that whether we realize it or not, I think, and I'll predict that I believe we're going to be living with transpilers for the foreseeable future. Yeah, web. that that's sort of the path. It's like there's always going to be ES5 only browsers out for years. How are we going to, what's the right way to take advantage of the new features and to not, you know, sort of impair performance? Yeah. Transpilers have kind of become the new jQuery, if you think about it. It's it's the mm-hmm. thing that levels the playing field and allows us to use the latest ECMAScript features, yep. like TypeScript. Right. That's the whole model of TypeScript. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, TypeScript is my my case example of how Microsoft and Google aren't really enemies. The fact that the Angular guys are are using TypeScript, which I mean, can we talk to that? What it, to me, it sounds like TypeScript helps us manage large scale JavaScript projects. It does. And if you think about, wow, I mean, what an amazing statement that is. If you think about mm. that, you look out in the world and people generally have a just despised feeling from Microsoft who don't work with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially the web guys. Yeah. They just hate it. It's like the Yankees, right? Everybody hates the Yankees. <laughs> no, Unless you're a Yankees fan. Unless you're a Yankees fan. That's right. Yeah, like There's me. just no middle ground <laughs> there, right? Or the Patriots. We'll say the Patriots. Everyone hates Bill Belichick. But or Manchester United, if you're in soccer, but you get these models where people just despise them. Well, Google is full of web engineers, right? Mm. And to think people who drive the web as much as they do, and they're not the only ones, but they're an example who drive the web to get in with TypeScript from the big empire, the evil empire. Um, I mean, that took a lot. If you think yeah, about that, right? They dropped it down and said, well, what do we need to be more efficient? And if you may recall, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, Google was actually uh, in line to create their own language called AtScript hmm. until AppScript. they talked with the TypeScript team and said, you know what? We could just use TypeScript. Right. It's open. It works. It's great. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, you know it. It's 
time to transpile this pathetic, lethargic 1997 Netscape 3 JavaScript joke into a blazing fast ECMAScript 6 asynchronous minified ladle of hilarious awesome sauce. <laughs> I think you're trying to bootstrap a joke there. Uh, ooh, Dum dum. Oh, you like me? Yeah, yours is better than mine, actually. <laughs> it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, building a mobile application for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone doesn't have to leave you yearning for the zombie apocalypse. Windows Phone? What's that? I don't know. Oh, jeez. Life is worth living. Promise. There's definitely a better way, and it's the Telerik platform. It not only helps you build awesome cross-platform mobile apps fast, it's also a complete solution that supports the entire spectrum of your development needs. From design, build, and test, to deploy, manage, and measure, you're covered. Try for free at Telerik.com slash platform. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Rick Stefanovsky. Right, congratulations, Rick. Golf clap, Golf clap for you, for sir. You, sir. And Rick just won the Telerik DevCraft collection, a big pile of awesome from our sponsor at Telerik and our good friends over there. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. John, we've asked you this before. Always like your answers. If you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, man. It's getting funny because I've been looking at some cool stuff lately, and there's so many good choices. I think I would buy a home studio for recording, though. Yeah. That's what I'd be looking at. Yes, sir. You think it's specifically a booth? Yeah, some way that I could have one of those little portable booths where you've got the soundproof walls and all that stuff hooked up. Well, and you've got a bunch of little ones, so I got to imagine it's challenging to get a quiet spot. It's a lot of fun trying to record with four kids running around, two yep. cats, a bunch of Girl Scouts coming in, because my wife's like the Girl Scout leader of like the whole state of Florida, I think, sometimes. Wow. As <laughs> uh, many kids are running out of here. And then at night, I try to record, and I live near the Magic Kingdom at Disney World, so we get the fireworks going off all night. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, we have booths that we got from soundsuckers.com. Cool. They're about five grand. And that's that's what I use here in the studio. I'm Googling that now. I always meant to get one, but I never have after all these years. Yeah. And now that the office has to be rebuilt because of the flood, I'm just building in soundproofing into my office. Right. Yeah. The only problem we have with you is the occasional dog bark. But, you know, that's a problem for the editor. Well, I thought it was just Richard. Not for, not for you. <laughs> right. Well, and it's only right now while I'm in the temporary location. That yeah. Normally, the new office will finally have a door and a proper on the air light and, you know, all yeah. of the things. Yeah. We can hear a little bit more echo lately because of your flood situation. Yeah. But I'm upstairs. Yeah. What can you do? What can you do? I got my Chaotica ball and it's eyeball and it's helped. Yep. It does help. Well, that's cool. Um, what's new in CSS land for Angular? Or does Angular not care about CSS? Oh, Angular loves CSS. Mm. <laughs> but one of the nice things with CSS and Angular is, uh, so one of the models behind Angular is that you're building components, web components, uh, not the formal spec version, because that's still right. kind of not ratified anyway. Right. But when you build a component in Angular, the difference between Angular 2 and Angular 1 is Angular 1, you'd say, okay, I've got a controller, a directive, and I've got my CSS associated with it. And that CSS kind of bled all over your app. 
Yeah. If I had to find a class called Foo and I made the background blue, well, once I included in my app that directive, everything else in the app kind of got that class too. Mm. Way Angular 2 works is you actually can assign your CSS to the component itself. Yeah. And then it takes care of kind of scoping that CSS to the component that you're using. Nice. Yeah, this that reminds me of Reactive, React. Yeah, yeah, React's got a very similar model and you know, they're all following following the web component's idea basically right. to kind of go down this road. Uh, in a lot of ways you get rid of MV, get rid of MVC and now we're going more towards components, which yeah. makes it easier to modularize what you do. Well, and it gets, again, when you think about sustainable software, the, the cascading style sheet behavior of sort of the style propagates everywhere, whether you wanted it to or not, is, is a problem. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thing when you wanted to do that. <laughs> it's a <laughs> yeah. big problem when, you, when it does unexpected things like, oh, my gosh, why did that turn pink? What happened? <laughs> the, the real question is, why was I using pink in the first place? <laughs> yeah, what was I thinking? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the, the cascading part is both a blessing and a curse for CSS, yeah. isn't it? It is. It comes in very handy, but it also becomes difficult. Uh, we had this exact situation where we built a tool, uh, one of my teams, that every app was going to use. It's basically like a self-debugging type tool for our apps. Uh, yeah. So we built this nice package where we made this tool, and it comes with a screen, basically a web page to help you debug. Well, they styled it, of course. And then once we put that app into other apps, of course, those styles bled into the other apps. Right. Man. So we had to come up with a way to, you know, basically just namespace our classes and so nothing else got, you know, nothing bled into it. It was not hard to fix, but it was something that was like, oh, yeah, we forgot to do that. Yeah. It's just another piece of discipline you have to follow, which is why, you know, good tooling comes into play where it doesn't have to be discipline. It has default behaviors that support a good discipline. It does. And, you know, Angular 2 has got a lot of good things about it that I like. And uh, reducing the learning surface is a huge piece of that for me. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we had services, factories, and uh, constants and values and providers in Angular 1. And frankly, they're all gone. There's no such thing wow. as any of those anymore. You want to create a service now? You don't have to pick which of the five you create. You just create a class. You define a class and you give it functions and methods and you use it. Uh, which is very .NET like if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, very component oriented that you you know build this thing this way with these behaviors, and it's sort of in that can, right? There's a there's a containerization there that makes it safer to work with. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Probably the most controversial of all the Angular two features was the data binding changes that they made uh, when they first announced it. Uh, probably most of the people who argued when I read all the articles on the web and heard all the vitriol that was going around. It was all about, oh my gosh, they got rid of data buying. They created this crazy square bracket and parentheses syntax and we hate Angular and I'm going to switch and do Python now or yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Python, really? And how's that working out for you? Yeah, Python's cool, but not the same thing, right? <laughs> no, not the same thing. It's like, yeah, I really love that like design of this new car, so I'm getting my skateboard and off I go. It's, it's things people say when they're under stressed is funny, right? I don't like you anymore. Yeah. I'm going to go get an ice cream bar. Yeah, what? Yeah. what has yes. that got to do with this? <laughs> yeah. What's that got to do with anything? But the data binding is neat because they technically got rid of data binding and everyone's going, oh my gosh, John, what do you mean? Um, they got rid of that because they had this thing called the digest cycle in Angular 1, which handled all the change detection for them. And it was great because it was magical and it did it, everything for you. But it was bad in the sense that it was highly 
difficult to make it very well performing when you had a lot of these things in your app. So the, every time with the, the digest cycle, you make a change, it ran through all the changes on your page again. And that could take a, t- a lot of time, especially if you've got a lot of things that are changing. So what they did now is they're using a concept called unidirectional data flow. And nice. it's something similar to things like immutable data that, uh, and you can use this React too. And it flows the data in one direction. Um, but that means, wait, you're not doing it in two directions. You're only going in one. So what happens to two-way data binding? What they really did, and the way I like to think about it is, you have one-way data binding from your model up to your screen to show it on the screen. But then when you want to type in a change into like an input, you also have one-way data binding back down to your model. So they basically use properties and events to do this uh, same paradigm. The end result is, if you look at data binding in Angular 1 versus Angular 2, you have the same features, and the syntax is not all that different. Uh, And it still works, and it's much faster. Interesting. But it it also speaks to a philosophical thing, which is that, for the most part, two-way data binding is as much a headache as it is a service. Yes. The architecture of it is very difficult to maintain and make it perform well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really, you know, you would think two is better than one, but the reality is reading and writing are very different things. Because where's your source of truth at that point? That's the problem yeah. with Angular 1, is anything could change anything at any time. So how do you know what's the source of truth for your data? Right. With unidirectional yeah. data flow, you have a source of truth. And then you can use things like RxJS to kind of flow the data and people can subscribe to it using observables to get those changes. All right, that's your second call back to ReactiveX. Should we talk? <laughs> Let's do it, man. So <laughs> this is kind of a cool topic. I love, you know, I, I talk in all these different worlds. And in the Microsoft world, reactive programming has been around for a while. Sure. Um, reactive.net or rx.net or whatever it's called has been around quite a bit. And I think the guy, Matt, I'm going to screw up his last name, Podowski? Podwasaki? Podwasaki. Yeah. <laughs> So I told you I'd screw it up. So he was one of the big guys in that. And he's also involved in how reactivex.io, which is the website, also does RxJS. And RxJS is is extremely popular right now. It's gaining steam big time. I think this is going to be the year of RxJS, honestly. Hmm. Um, I'm I'm not gaga over it, but I do like it a lot in the fact that it provides a really great way to get data. And then have other people listen for the changes everywhere. Uh, and it allows you to do things like retries. So you can go get your data and have it retry automatically. It allows you also to, let's say you hook up to a socket and you want to get like stock ticker uh, quotes. And that socket's open. When the data changes in your app, you can have Rx sit there and listen to it. And it could subscribe everywhere and get all those changes automatically without having nice. to do any kind of polling. So there's a lot of features that Rx brings in, and it's not part of Angular, but it's something that the Angular, once you start doing Angular, uh, you almost can't escape it because it's such a popular web paradigm now that it Angular team is taking advantage of that. And in fact, if you do like HTTP.get in Angular, you're getting back an observable, which is what you get back from Rx. Hmm. I mean, on the surface of it, it strikes me that Rx is really well suited for that incoming stream of data. Right. That is the as the server shoves things down to you, you're able to render it very asynchronously. But I'm thinking about it going the other way as well. Now that we've decoupled, we know we're not doing the two way data binding thing. We're talking about different ways to get data onto the page and to get the changes back to the server. What does that look like with reactive? 
So there's there's a couple ways you can do that. I haven't done it all three active yet because frankly I haven't seen the value in using it to do some. While it can do a lot of things, the things I've used it for are more for hey, that's a huge advantage of reactive. Right. For getting data back down, a lot of times what I'll do is like if I've got an input field on the screen, I'll actually just use Angular's eventing. You know, when you type into the field and have it send it back down to the model, mm. which that mm. model might be being listened to with reactive with observable, which sends it somewhere else, uh, which is nice. Yeah, it's an interesting point that just the normal declarations might be using Reactive under the hood. You don't have to think about it. Yeah, and I think we'll see more of that happening. Uh, other frameworks are picking up on RxJS as well, which is a, I think it's a good thing. I think it's going to be one of those things this year that's kind of, if you had to pick a couple of technologies to look into that you hadn't already heard about, RxJS, I believe, is one of those. Now, if R, I mean, if RxJS sort of drops under the hood for a lot of this stuff, then the only thing I think we need to think about from a web dev point of view is thinking that everything is asynchronous. Yeah, yeah. So you got to think about that asynchronicity. And some of the APIs kind of bleed into you. Like the simplest APIs you'll have to learn to do Rx. You'll have to know what an observable is. That's the thing that's right. actually going to be observed. And you have to know what a subscription is. Because if you think about it, what you're really doing is pub sub. You're saying, here's my right. data, observe me, and then go subscribe to any changes. Yeah, just... So let me know when there's a change, right? That's all I care about. It does a lot, but that's like the core. If you know that, you've kind of got the, the you can hit the ground running. Yeah, but it's very easy to think of a page in terms of I'm going to re- receive a wallop of data and I could, f- and I'll just fill it in, in the order I want to fill it in as. As soon as I'm thinking of an observable model, it's like I don't know what order stuff's going to come in at. When stuff arrives, I just need to put it in the right location. Yeah, exactly. And there's some cool things that Angular 2 is built on top of it. Like there's a thing called a pipe in Angular 2, which they used to be called filters mm-hmm. in Angular 1. Now they're called pipes because they follow the pipe character, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> and there's a pipe called async. And one of the things async does say, okay, let's say I had a for loop in the Angular. I'm looping through a list of uh, podcasts. And those podcasts are an observable. If they're an observable, if you put the async pipe on it, it will automatically subscribe and listen to those changes and pop them in the screen when they change. You don't have to write any code to do that, which is pretty darn cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll also work with promises, too, I should say. So that async pipe is built to say, I don't care if you're getting it from a promise or you're getting it from an observable. I'll handle that and put it on the screen. <sighs> There's been so much promise to promises, <laughs> but I don't know that it's really been realized. Should we dig into this a little more? Like, why would I care one way or the other? If it was a promise or an observable? Yeah. So we have done a lot of promises over the last couple of years. And if for those who don't know, promises are effectively a way of doing asynchronous communication where you say, go make this call. And then when you're done, there's a then function, which accepts the callback or a catch statement. Right. Promises, in my mind, are really good at one and done, a very deterministic thing. Go get me the list of customers. And when you're done, do this. Yeah. It's very good for that kind of behavior. It's a very async await-ish kind of thing, isn't it? Yes. And it's, it's it lets you think in a deterministic fashion of there is an end to this game. I want the customers. I got them. I'm done. Go away, promise. With the Rx, with observables, you may not know when your data is done. Meaning you might be getting a little now, a little later. Data might change right. somewhere on the server. It allows you to have more of an open stream. It's a streaming philosophy to allow you to make changes a little more... Uh, fluidly uh, it also allows you to retries where what happens in a promise if your http call fails well you have to make another promise to go make another call rx right. has the means in it to you know wait and then try again it seems to me that that the observable approach of reactive is 
much friendlier to the spa where yes. we, the page is always there. Order doesn't matter. We just hear the things we're listening to. We'll see what happens. Yeah, but I will tell you, now let's go the other side, right? The downside to RX, my mind, is if you if I have to teach somebody promises, which I do a lot, mm-hmm. I teach them a very simple API surface. Then, catch, and how to handle exceptions, because I think that's a core feature. Right. Hmm. Which is to do it over again. Yeah. So, you're learning very simple things, and I can teach you how to go down that road. With RX, the number of APIs that they expose is just phenomenal. So there's a huge concept count that you have to kind of get your arms around. Um, granted, I mentioned if you're getting into it, you do the observe and the subscribe, but there's so much more. Uh, so it can feel kind of overwhelming when you get into RX. Right. Uh, operators, schedulers, there's more stuff to to react. Well, reactive came from a lot of different places, too, in that respect. So it's, it's almost like there's too many things. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's a lot there. And to be very frank, again, you don't have to use a lot of the stuff with Angular 2, but um, it's there for you to take advantage of if you would like to do so. Right. Yeah, but, that, but that's also scary, too. It's like there's so many of these, well, you could do that, rather than, you know, here are the right ways. Yeah, in fact, when I wrote the Angular 2 tutorial uh, up on the Angular IO website, um, I was, one of the things I did is I specifically chose to start by making the data mocked data the next step is mm-hmm. you then make an HTTP call to get the data, and I make it specifically come back as a promise. Why? Because most people in Angular 1 know what that is. Right. Uh, so I don't want to teach them too many new things at once, so I teach them, okay, make the HTTP call, get a promise, you're done. Then the next step is going to be, okay, what about this Rx thing? How do we do that? And that's kind of what I'm working on right now with the uh, documentation. When it strikes me then that a promise is almost a, a subset of what reactive can be. Like you can emulate promise behavior in reactive fairly easily. There's just a lot more after that. Yes. It's a superset in a lot of ways uh, to what okay. you can do. There's just so much more. You know, there's functions like map and do, and it's just all those other things you can do with it. Are these good things in, in, a, in a spa context or in a JavaScript context in general? I think they are. Uh, I'm coming into it. I've, I like it a lot, but I am being cautiously optimistic if, if that's uh, the right term. I like what it's doing a lot. I don't think in a lot of ways I would just do a wholesale replacement everywhere because right. sometimes all I want to do is just get the value, be done, and move along. Because I come at, at Rx from a, a data processor's point of view, right? My first encounter with it had nothing to do with the web at all. This was, we are overwhelming SQL servers with huge volumes of transactions, many of which are not important. Can we put something in front of it that can manage those huge streams of data and only shove to the database what's important and put other things in log files and so forth where, you know, it's not as expensive or painful. And so... And a lot, you know, if you think about some of the other features in Reactive, that makes a lot of sense for that kind of problem. I just don't know how well it applies to JavaScript. Yeah, it's it's been interesting for me. I've I've been going into this thinking, how can I use it? And I always look at stuff as, what problem is it solving for me? Mm-hmm. If it's mm-hmm. not pro- solving a problem for me, I don't give it a whole lot of time because I've got too many other things to be looking at that do solve problems. Sure, but as a safe way to take on asynchronous behavior, that's a pretty compelling thing. Yes, uh, which, hey, maybe at some point very soon, hopefully TypeScript will have async await built into it, which will help us there too. Right. Well, isn't ECMAScript 7 going to have that? Uh, I don't know. I haven't uh, looked at the spec recently, but I know that TypeScript is planning on putting that in. Uh, and I know they're hoping it'll be in the spec, uh, but I can't speak to whether it's in there or not yet. I haven't checked. 
Yeah, you know, and in there is an interesting concept when you're talking about the way the standard ratification process goes on. Yes. Just because it's in the document doesn't mean it's going to show up in the browser. You know, there's there's a lot of... There's a lot of great things that are coming out this year, and I, I've got a lot to my mind because I do a podcast called Adventures in Angular, and we recently did a show called uh, The Year in Review and Predictions for 2016. And one of the interesting things that came out of there was talking about what should we be looking at this year and what do we think is going to be happening. And I think there's not going to be a winner. Everyone wants a winner. Who's going to win the framework wars? Who's going to win the browser wars? Yeah. I think winning is just a fallacy on a lot of these things. Well, and it, it, it calls back to this idea of the one right way, which we just right. know isn't true. Yeah, how's that .NET and Java winning thing going on? Huh? <laughs> 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 I mean, it's just, why does it matter either? People feel like they need sometimes to declare a winner. I, I mean, it's you don't want to have 20 things out there, but I don't think we have 20. I mean, we've got React and Angular, the big fish right now, and, and I think right. Aurelia is, uh, is a very awesome third option. Well, and, th- and there's also this element of competition, too, that that Rob being able to manifest his thinking around right ways to do things puts pressure on us all to make our libraries better. Yes. And they borrow from each other. I mean, Angular yeah. specifically borrowed from React and some of the way they're doing reactive programming. And right. they also specifically borrowed from Ember, by the way. They have a partnership with them, uh, which was a big thing for a while, too, and still exists. They have a thing called Ember CLI, a command line interface, which lets you, like, generate projects, do builds, uh, do your automated testing. It's really cool. That's interesting. So Angular has a thing called Angular CLI that they're putting into Angular 2, which will let people do that from the command line, which very easily could be tooled from things like Visual Studio as well. Right. Uh, Because what's the biggest issue people have when they're going to Visual Studio and they try to use new frameworks is they sometimes they get that tool fatigue of, I don't want to go to Terminal and type all this stuff in, which I get it. Well, that's where you got great guys like Mads Christensen to come in and tool on top of it and, you know, give us the buttons and the right clicks to automatically do these things. And having a CLI makes his life a lot easier. Sure. Well, and I think we're headed towards a world where that's sort of a prereq for any useful library. It's just got to be a command line way to get at it. Well, it also solves a problem, too. Like if uh, I don't know if we talked about Yeoman on this show, but uh, not enough. It's cool and I like it. I use it a lot. But it's also kind of a mess in my way. It's one of those necessary evils. And, <laughs> man, people always ask me, what Yeoman generator do you use for Angular? And I wrote my own, and it's still not great, and there's like 90 others. Right. The problem is it's opinionated. And so I think in a way, and I don't know if they did this for this reason, but the Angular team was like, you know what? Let's not lean on any of these kind of tools like Yeoman or others. Let's just make our own CLI. It's just Node. And do what we want to do. <sighs> yeah. Well, and because if there was a if there was a reliable way, they would they would lean on it. And I think when you see this kind of fragmentation, it's that we aren't clear on the right way to go about things, and there isn't one right way. And I guess it's a balancing act here. We you don't want just one way. Sure, you want some diversity, but not so fragmented that you you can't choose. Yeah, everything's got to evolve, and it's good to have a couple options. You just want to have fifty of them, you know. Right, John. How many? You've obviously done spa stuff before all of this all of these frameworks evolved like with just simple ajax calls do you ever how many how many times a a month or a year do you think 
damn it, I'm just going back to vanilla JS. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do write a lot of vanilla JS actually. Yeah, uh, I read a ton of it, and I just had an argument with some one of my teams actually <laughs> actually just yesterday, where the argument was, hey, we were trying to do something on Node. And they were trying to pitch the idea of using a third-party library that did something. Like, but it's only 100 lines, John. I said, but Node does this natively with just use JavaScript. Right. They're like, but I'd have to write those 100 lines. Well, they did it. Why can't you? Right. <laughs> well, then I looked at the project they wanted to use, and they're like, well, it's, it's uh, not supported anymore. It hasn't been updated in three years. Exactly. I'm like, like, do you really want to lean on that? Are we that lazy? I could have rewritten the thing in the time we we're arguing about this. Right. <laughs> it wasn't lazy. It was just, you know, wanted to reuse code is what it really was. I guess, you know, what I'm saying is that any anyone who's using these frameworks really ought to know how to just roll up their sleeves and write some JavaScript. I mean, we had the, I call it the jQuery syndrome, you know, where all these people who learned how to program the web with JavaScript did it with jQuery, which obviously... Yep you know, abstracted a lot of things away and introduced new problems with asynchronicity and all that stuff. And so it's an old saw that you should know what your tools are doing and be able to be able to at least read the code and definitely be able to write it. Yeah, it's a great thing to lean on a framework, like even the .NET framework, right? Like if you took away one of your features, let's say I took away iNotify property change in the yeah. Silverlight WPF days. You should know what it's doing so you could do it yourself if you had to. Right. Doesn't mean you need to do that, but uh, in our world now at JavaScript, that means understanding what JavaScript's doing. Don't lean on Angular or React or Aurelia or any of these tools. And Chris Love would love this, right? Right, yeah. Know the language, know, the, know where it's running, the V8 engine, know the browsers uh, first, because a lot of times you don't need these other frameworks to do certain things. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, at the end of the day, you're just reading and writing, you know, values and text properties and things like that. That's essentially what's going on. It's just all being handled for you. John, where are you going to be next? That's a good question. Uh, it's March, right? <laughs> Dev intersection, yep. angle brackets. You going to build? I'm not going to build, but I am going to angle brackets, dev intersections. And I took the whole week off. I can't wait. Yeah. Wow. Enjoy the conference. And it's in your town. Yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm actually going to stay at the hotel. It's only five miles away from me, but I'm staying at the hotel and I'm going to hang out at the conference the whole time. Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking to a lot of great people. That is awesome. You know, we sold out the swan, which means wow. everybody in the bar is going to be at the conference. That's awesome. I love that. And I love that location. As you know, Richard, I love Disney and I love being able to You can walk out of the swan. This is how cool it is. You can walk out of the swan and there's a massive lake there. And right. it's just beautiful. And there's daytime activities, nighttime activities, and you can walk to two of the different parks from the Swan, the Hollywood Studios, where all the Star Wars stuff is, or Epcot at Disney. And it's just great. To me, it's a great atmosphere and it's a great place to collaborate with people. So we're going to stay extra an extra day on Friday, maybe do the Disney thing. So maybe we can hook up. That'd be great. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this. All right, man. That's a show. Great stuff. John, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We always learn something. Hey, thanks, guys. I've been, been about six months or so. I figured it was a good time to jump back in. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmit a band by the MCC. Yes, I'm a, a